Um, well, as many of you know, not the people who are here the, for the first time, but if you've been here this month, I, um, I've been teaching at Spirit Rock all month, the second month of the two-month retreat, the longest retreat we teach at Spirit Rock. Um, and it's a very intense and beautiful, powerful retreat. People, some people have been practicing sitting and walking and practicing in silence for seven weeks now. Some people who came at the break have been practicing for three weeks now. We're just entering the last week. Um, and I've been talking about the retreat and um, during the last number of weeks. And I brought a talk that I gave at the retreat. And I was going to give it, but I don't feel like giving it. So, uh, and I've learned that that's not, it's better not to give the talk if I'm not, I don't feel like giving it generally. Um, so I thought I would just say a few things and then maybe we'd be a little more interactive. And what I, what I actually thought is for you to consider, given that I've been on retreat, and some of you have heard a bit about retreat, many of you have been on retreat, many of you have never been on retreat, what kind of questions do you have about retreat, given what you've heard over the last few weeks or or your own experience about retreat, or your own non-experience, having never had any experience, you might have some questions. But I first thought I would talk a little bit about how many people have seen the video that's it's from the TED conference, but it's also up on YouTube called The Stroke of Insight. One, two, three, four people. Pretty interesting video, huh? So I'm going to encourage you all to go on, you know, whatever your local channel is, you know, YouTube, or, or you could go to the TED conference and, or Google the stroke of insight, like stroke, like somebody has a stroke. And it's about a brain scientist who had a stroke and stayed awake during her stroke. And she describes what happened to her. And she had an awakening experience during her stroke. And it's pretty, it's pretty wild to hear. And, it's, uh, you know, and, she, and then she spent years kind of recuperating. I think the stroke was nine years ago. And then she's talking about the experience. And it's very, um, it's a dharma in many ways. She's describing the dharma. She dis- and she's, but she's describing it from a brain scientist's perspective who also had what she said, an experience when she, where she went to La La Land, right? She said these things started happening and she calls it La La Land. Like she, her, her body becomes, I can't remember the exact details, but her body, at some point she basically she's out of her body and she's seeing her body, and she's thinking, oh my God, I'm so big. How could I ever get back into that little body? My consciousness is so expand. My, you know, my, the sense of what's true is so beyond this little body. She said, I thought, oh, how can I get back into this body? Or she begins to, I mean, it's quite... It's got a lot of kind of mystical and diffusive, roomy-like, you know, a lot of feelings of love and connectedness with all things and being totally fine 
with her body totally shutting down, which she, she you know, describes in detail the various functions of her body shutting down because of the stroke. And it's worth, worth checking out, worth viewing. And you know, what's nice about meditation is maybe you don't have to have a stroke. <laughs> you <know>. Maybe, <laughs> somebody said. Because <laughs> one of the things that happens on these long retreats is people wake up. People have deep experiences of freedom and of openness and of letting go and of non-attachment. There's a number of people from our group here who are on retreat. And one of them was, came in this week and, and well, all they had to say was, oh, it's all true. It's all true. It all, person said, oh, all the pieces of the puzzle came together. It's like, oh, I understand now. I see. This makes sense to me now. Oh, the Dharma, you know, I had little pieces here and there, but now it's like, oh, everything is totally impermanent. It's not, I always knew that was true, but it's, I see it everywhere. And then I'm, I'm walking around, and it's all so simple. It's, it's very simple. It's not a big deal even at this point. It's just like, oh, I see everything, and everything is fresh. Everything is new. The colors, the shapes, the the forms, the life of everything is all, it's impermanent. Impermanent just means everything is new all the time. Everything is fresh. And this person was saying, it's so simple, it's so simple. And there was some grief, a little bit of grief, and some tears. It was like, you know, what have I been doing my whole life? Where have I been my whole life? What, what, what's, what, what have I been so worried about or so concerned about or so afraid of? And, and all I have to do is be here. This is the stage of a retreat. It's almost like the practice can stop. And it's not that it stops. It's just you've developed, that capacity has developed to such a degree that it just functions. And so you're not having to do the practice, you're just there, and there's this presence. And, and the person said, I just feel present, and I, I feel like I'm not practicing, maybe I should be practicing. And I'm like, no, you can trust yourself here. You trust yourself. Because what's happening is the Dharma is revealing itself quite fully for this person. And it really is a number of people, I'm thinking of different people from our group who have, are having really beautiful, powerful retreats. And of course, especially for the new people, that doesn't mean it's easy. In fact, you know, one of the, somebody came in who'd been having a really nice retreat and hit a really hard place and just was, you know, not happy with what was happening and felt bad and felt like they're losing the retreat and they just wanted to go home. And, um, and this is the rolling up the mat stage, it's called, in, in Dharma practice. And, and the person said to me, uh, said, I, I want you to do something to comfort me. And I said, well, and I, I know the person's practice 
and the person was in a really good place and I, the first thing I said is I think you're doing really good and I think this is an important part of practice this is not a problem and, and it's just, just so you understand the trajectory of what happens it's not, a, it's not a direct line to God right? it's not a direct line to nirvana really the way awakening works is one opens and closes and opens and closes and opens and closes or a better way, maybe I can say it more accurately there's opening and then there's the next level of confusion ignorance holding, fear, uh, uh, what are called the kalesas or the obscurations, show themselves. And, and actually the opening is a precondition for the next level coming forward, the next level of attachment and identification uh, and misunderstanding. And whatever the history of difficulty is and... Uh, uh, hurt or pain that needs to be metabolized and so the openings then allow the next level of what's difficult to come forward in order so that it releases itself self-liberates within the mindfulness itself and then the next level of opening comes after that so it's a it's a it's a dynamic process it's a um, it has a certain dialectic power to it. And so this person said, oh, I, you know, I want you to comfort me. And I'm like, uh, no, that's, that's, that would be not doing my job right. I don't think you need comfort right now. I think you need to know you can be with this. You, you can actually sit with this, what's coming forward. The sense, and really, mostly, remember, people have been sitting, even whether it's seven weeks or three weeks, three weeks of sitting, and you're in a slightly altered state of consciousness, right? It's not exactly, you know, like your everyday state of consciousness. The things have opened, the mind has opened, the heart has opened, the body has opened, and the, the sensitivity is very powerful. And um, I, I'm remembering more in detail what they were saying, that they, the feeling of being lost, totally lost. And, so, and that's a very powerful feeling when you're so sensitive and the sense of vulnerability is very powerful. And so, and, but I knew that this person was actually fine. It was fine to feel that. And that they had the capacity and the skills uh, and the uh, centeredness and the ground that they developed over these weeks to feel this level of being lost because what was being lost was some part of their identity something very familiar something very we usual, we take ourselves to be and often when that identity starts to go or let go or release one of the ways we'll feel is lost or confused or a little disoriented or a little scared or a little like uh-oh what what's going on and then as we get present there then something good will happen something good will happen because the essence of who and what we are is good the essence of who and what we are 
would be called Buddha nature. And so as we get closer to that, even though it kind of scares the small sense of self, it really, it really begins to reveal itself. We really begin to see who and what we are. So people come in a lot at this phase in the retreat with a sense of um, fruition. Uh, understanding the Dharma is one of the strongest, one of the most consistent themes of what people say. Oh, I see, I understand. And it's not like they didn't understand before, but it's a whole nother level of, un it's cellular. It's in your bones and marrow and blood. It's like, uh, you know, or, or we see we are the Dharma. And of course, even saying seeing is a little bit distant. It's, it's the know, the being, the knowing is so direct, is so immediate, is so alive. And it's so pleasurable for people, even when it's difficult. This is one of the paradoxes. There'll be people come in and they say, well, this was happening and it really was I, w I was I was having great meditations, I was having a lot of bliss, and I was quiet, and then this thing came up, which is how it works, something came, and at first I was resistant, and I was noticing my aversion, and then I actually got present there, and then I noticed I didn't even care if it went away or not, because I was there, and it didn't, I didn't need to get rid of it anymore. And of course, that's, a, that's always a sign of real freedom. We don't need, we, we realize, oh, the realizing the Dharma doesn't mean everything's blissful or good or happy in this kind of, you know, ecstatic way. It means, no, we find our ground, we find our freedom in the midst of all experience. And it's very, very, very helpful to do some extended sitting to build, to develop those capacities, to develop some mastery of the meditative skills and arts, to see where does this practice go? Where does it go? And I want to be careful here. When I say mastery, I don't mean control. The mastery is learning how to not be in control. The mastery is how to let things be as they are rather than imposing our ideas and our beliefs and our wants and our not wanting. It's freedom. Freedom when we don't have to want or not want. Or it's freedom we can want and we can not want and not be bound by it. We can want things to be a certain way, but it's not a big deal. We cannot want something to be here, but it's not a big deal. We're not bound by our preferences in this way. The, the very famous Zen text that goes, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. And the fellow who wrote it, like 30 years later, did a, excuse me, not the fellow who wrote it, the fellow who translated it, 30 years later did a, a, another translation which is a little even more refined he said, the great way is not difficult for those who are not attached to their preferences. 
because we all, you know, the first way, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences, sounds like we have to get rid of our preferences. That's what awakening would look like. But in fact, they always do, this is a Zen quote, and they always do it in Zen. They make the poetic sound so good. But in fact, it's not how human beings are. It just means, oh, we're not attached to our preferences. We, we'll all have preferences. We'll like, you know, red, or some people like orange, or blue, or green, or whatever. But, it, but it's not a big deal. It's just we like that. But where our happiness is not based on our preference. So it's just a little check-in from the retreat. Question? So, so the how do what's the form in terms of how do people work with teachers on retreat? Generally, um, you'll on a retreat like this, what we do is that um, people see two teachers and they alternate between the two teachers, and there's and they see uh, they come in for a 15-minute interview or meeting with the teacher every other day, and the. Um, um, and then the teachers both write down what happened and communicate with each other about working with whoever it might be. And the um, and then also there's you know some people will want to speak to another teacher. Sometimes they'll leave a note and say, oh, can I come meet with you once or have a chat. And, you know, sometimes you know the people, like I know a lot of the people from this group and from other retreats, and then some people are new, and we just get to know each other over the course of the retreat. about decompressing after the retreat. So you're doing your first retreat. When is it? Uh, it's uh, the end of June, July. It's a meadow retreat. A meadow retreat? Yeah. So you'll be doing loving-kindness practice 24-7. Okay, great. It's powerful. Um, <clears throat> um, and the question's really about decompressing. So on a retreat like we're doing right now, which is seven weeks, eight weeks for some people, four weeks for others, starting Tuesday, we'll start to break silence or, or start to do some mindful speaking for people. For the people who've been sitting two months on Tuesday, for the people who've been sitting one month, they'll start on Wednesday. We're done on Friday. So all, there's always some... A, a, we do a transition with you within the retreat as a way to start to decompress or bring you up to the surface a little bit. And it's a really important part of the retreat because you've been on a, you know, a journey or a descent or altered, whatever way you want to talk about it. Um, the, 
the most important thing to remember, the, the most important two things to remember are uh, the retreat never ends. <laughs> right? We always think, oh, it's going to end. Well, it actually doesn't end because really you're on retreat right now and the retreat's called your life. <laughs> and actually, it will end at some point in this form. But these are just various stages of your retreat, of your life retreat. You're on a human life retreat. And it'll be a little more intense. And so right view becomes important. And, and really, for people who really resonate with this practice, whatever you're doing is practice. Whatever you're doing is practice. Work is practice. Relationship is practice. Being on the Muni is practice. Riding your bike is practice. It's all practice. It's all part of practice. Not that it's formal and mechanical, but that this is the medium, this is the, this is the form of, that awakening offers us, is the human form. And so, so I think it's really helpful to have right view, a really right understanding of what's happening. And then the, re, then the, the meditative retreat is within that form. It's one part of your practice. Um, and then the other is to t let go of the retreat. As soon as it's gone, you let go. And, and the more you let go, the more it's here. And, and you'll, the teachers will also offer you very specific um, uh, suggestions and practices for how to... Uh, there's a certain art to going in and out of retreat. And usually it takes a few retreats. You'll make some mistakes. Usually the mistake is you leave retreat after seven days or two weeks or ten days or a month and you decide on the way home, oh, I need to get some bread. I'm going to go to the supermarket. That's your first mistake. <laughs> I can't tell you how many rides home I spent looking in Safeway going, wow. <laughs> Look at all those breads. <laughs> How do you choose? <laughs> Look at that one. <laughs> so it's good. <laughs> it's good to. It's helpful. Now, and this always can't always happen like this, but it's helpful actually if you have a day or so after the retreat to help decompress at home. It's good not to go right to all your emails. It's really helpful not to look at the news the first thing when you get off. You know, it's, a, it's the same news it's always been. The world's a mess and then there's a lot of, you know, then there's sports or something, you know. It's like, you know. But, um, but actually to, to, to give yourself a certain kind of time to let the retreat metabolize as you keep coming up to the speed or coming up to the surface. So you'll, you'll see, you'll learn. You'll learn by doing it. I yeah, no, I'm just, I don't know if I'm quite done. I'm remembering leaving retreats. One retreat I left, I was actually, I was valedictorian of my undergraduate. And I, I left retreat and went right to my ceremonies and gave a speech. 
And that worked really well for some reason. I was very present, and so that, that helped. Um, but to stay out of the supermarket for a day or so. Okay? Okay. Other question? Uh-huh. How do you like that? Oh, it was fantastic. Yeah. I dreamt about her. Oh, that's a very good sign. That's a really no, I'm quite serious. That's a really good sign. So Deepa Ma is one of the great uh, awakened beings who we knew, who who was one of the teachers of Jack Kornfield and Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein. And there's a little book about her called Knee Deep in Grace. And she's an amazing being. And she's, a lot of people still have a relationship with her. And that's why I said, oh, the dream is a good sign. Well, I was really um, struck by how, um, you know, in her, people around her <coughs> awakened. And she was very um, forthright about that's what we were in this for. That's That's a good question. Okay. Right. So the questions about Deepama, Deepama, who was, uh, you know, just an amazing being, um, strong emphasis on awakening, and people awakened around her. Um, and um, depending on where you are, you will hear that emphasis in the Dharma in the West. So on the retreat, you'll hear it a lot more than maybe you'll hear it on Sunday night because there's a different... Um, um, uh, it's not that I don't say it, but I don't say it as much because there's other things that need to be said here, especially about how to practice in daily life. And, you know, an awakening itself um, has a broad understanding to it. And even little awakening is very important. You know, like, can we be a little more present? Can we wake up a little more in our, in our daily life? You know, in addition to whatever the so-called big awakening might be. Um, but the more you go into the Dharma, the more it's very clear awakening is the goal and it's not bad to have that goal at all it's fine to have that goal in fact that's that's why people come to the dharma to wake up it's totally natural it's considered a really skillful desire to wake up and uh, a beautiful aspiration you know one part of the path is called right aspiration right aspiration is about the aspiration to wake up so let that happen for you. You know, Deepama will awaken you. Other questions? Comments? Please. Um, I have a question about the mechanics of relationship and retreat. Relationship and retreat. Where, where one person is on retreat and another is not. Yeah. 
the other is. What do you mean by that? So the questions about the dynamics, one person's on retreat, one person's home practicing. So how to how to how to um, come off of retreat and be in relationship? How how retreat long retreat might impact relationship, things like that. Okay. Um, again, it's there's a certain art to um, relationship. It's helpful if your partner is uh, they don't have to be practicing, but at least supportive. You know, at least has some idea that it's good, and usually they do, especially because you're so nice to be around after you've come <laughs> off retreat. You're like, oh, that's okay, that's fine. Oh, I just, I, my heart's open and I'm relaxed and present, and people actually really like people who have just been on retreat. <laughs> so, so that that part helps. Um, the part that's usually hardest is people miss people when they're gone for a week or three weeks or a month or two months or three months. And that, if, the, if there isn't some uh, strong container for the relationship, that can be hard. Or even if there is a strong container, that can still be difficult. And, that, and people have to work that out together. Um, You know, the most important thing, maybe, uh, I shouldn't say it that way, one of the important things is to watch out about getting any identity about being a meditator or spiritual or awake. If you've got a, if you come back and you're wielding your freedom, (laughs) right? Oh, why are you so caught in that? Oh, are you still attached to that? <laughs> how come you're How come you're having those those um, What do they call them? <laughs> There's a word that's used. I, let me see if I can remember. I can't remember the word. There's a There's a pejorative word that they put before emotions. Anybody know what it is? In, in, in Buddha's afflictive, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Oh, you're still having those afflictive emotions? Oh. Then, then, then you need to look at your own practice a little more clearly. And uh, from one who's learned, really, there's a there's a kind of way that um, sometimes meditators will. Uh, Maybe early in practice, first ten years or so, they'll um, they'll kind of wield their the emptiness. Oh, you're you're still attached to you know this or that, and I'm free as if I'm free. But really, if if you're free, then you just appreciate where somebody's at, and who they are, and what they have to offer, and. And uh, so hopefully the f- whatever freedom one gets actually can really um, be part of the relationship in a really positive way. 
that you really can see, oh, this unique being, first of all, wants to be with me. That's just amazing, right? That's just beautiful. And then, and then to actually see their uniqueness, see the, the uh, freshness that one might have discovered on retreat. And then it, it is, there is some art to harmonizing the energies at times. And that, that's an art. I don't know if I have a lot of, you know, a patience is helpful. Really some patience to let it happen. And, to, um, uh, and one of the things, of course, good communication always helps. And so really speaking to the dissidents... If you have enough relationships so you can name, it's just being mindful. You be mindful of the dissidence that might be there and that, that harmonizes. It's one of the paradoxes of mindfulness. If we're mindful of what's wrong, it starts to relax. If we're mindful of our, of our uh, anger and instead of you know, resisting it or thinking it shouldn't be there, it will start to relax. And it's the same if there's a dissonance as we come off retreat with our partners or our friends or whoever, close person, um, that if we can actually say, you know, I, I feel like I can't connect with you right now and because and I feel like I'm like this and you're like that without attacking the person or even the judgment and they can say how it is for them, then, then we get real. And if we can be real together, we can be in different places and appreciate the difference. And so we don't even have to uh, deny that maybe we'll be in different places for a while as things harmonize or recalibrate. And that's a whole art that we still, that's, that, that part is not learned on retreat. Some of the skills are learned on retreat. The, the skill of being real, clear, acknowledging, opening, but then to do it relationally that's, a, that's another level of complexity and, and one that we're still learning how to begin to teach uh, for lay people. Remember, in the monastic tradition, they just didn't have to do it in the same way, right? That wasn't what was called for. That's, that's one of the benefits. You know, you don't have the same level of complexity. They still have plenty, plenty of relationship problems. I don't want to deny that. I know enough monastics that, you know, it's people, right? If you have people, you have problems. But, um, but if it's a more closer relationship, intimate relationship, it's, it's even more complex. So does that give you a little picture? Question. Hmm. 
Yeah, no, it's an interesting question. So for more senior practitioners, what's it like to be on retreat a month or a few months or a year? Um, well, uh, the first thing I'll say, I'm just thinking about my friends and people I know. They all love it. People love it. And you, you really learn to love it. You don't, it's not like you love every moment on retreat. But there's something so precious about that kind of time. And even a year, which is a long time to be on retreat. Most people I know haven't done a year. I know a few people who've done a year. But if you look at the big picture in a whole life, a year's not that much. And, 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 even, and really, three months is not that much. Or a month is not that much. Or a week is not in the big picture. So I just want to give context. We spend a lot of our lives involved in not retreat. And so then that opportunity to be on retreat and be on for a long period of time is very, people love it, who've, who've done it and, and have gotten their, found their ground in that form. And it takes a while to find, you know, you do some and you do some and then you, you learn, like anything. A um, few things. One of the things that people love is when you have a long enough retreat, you, you just, just in terms of that time sequence, you let go of where you've come from and you can't see where you're going. Right? You let go of whatever your life has been, you know, and you go on retreat and it takes a while and slowly your life just falls away, whatever it was. And, you, and you, you're not looking towards the end because the end's far out enough that it just would be suffering to look towards the end. And so it really helps you get here. And, the, and the, it's not just the capacity to get here, but the experience of being here is infinite. The experience of being present is infinite. Right? Time doesn't go like this then. Time go, it goes like this. The moment is infinite. And so there's something about that infinity that is very, very satisfying to the human heart and mind and soul, if we, if we would use that word in Buddhism. It's very, it's, it's like, oh, you just, there's just being here. And so, you know, right, we've all learned how to do lots of doing in our lives, which is a good thing to learn. This is learning about being, and being is infinite. And that, inf that the infinity of being is so satisfying. It's so, that, that's the main thing that I think, because it's not necessarily people looking to get anything at a certain point. And I think, I, I don't know if I said this to this group, but I sat for the month and I didn't do anything for a month. I didn't do any practice for a month. Practices happened at times, but I wasn't doing any practice. And just to, just to be, you know, just to be. 
And it doesn't mean a lot didn't happen on the retreat. I'm not trying to say, oh, it was just this blank slate. Or A lot happened. But it wasn't about getting somewhere. And so that, that changes at a certain point sometimes. And then sometimes it is about getting somewhere. It's like, okay, I want to learn this. You know, a few years ago I decided I want to learn whole body breathing. I spent a lot of time, and I still, there's more for me to learn. And I'll do some retreats when I have the time and just devote myself to that practice because I want to learn more. But, you know, some of the Spirit Rock teachers were out sitting this retreat. You know, we were, he was. He was breaking silence with us yesterday. He came to the meal and we were talking. And You know, how was it? You know, you ask somebody, how was it? And they're just like, you know, it was wonderful. But it doesn't mean it was easy. It doesn't mean it was just smooth. There's something beyond good or bad, easy or difficult. There's something much more satisfying than that. And that's very radical. That's very radical. It's a really interesting question. And I know, uh, you know, I, the person I know who's done a year, uh, aside from monastic, which is different because they're not doing, but Jack Cornfield did a year-long silent meditation retreat. And, you know, he'd already had a lot of understanding and and he just wanted to see where does it go? Where does it go? Where does it go? And so most, partly you also just get to see how broad the terrain is. And what's the terrain? The terrain is the human heart and mind. It's infinite. It's unlimited. It's boundless. It's limitless. You know, we get kind of a little stuck in our routines and our ruts and our habits and our ideas and our history and our identities. And it's, you know, it's good to enact those and fulfill them and, and enjoy them. But it's not all of who we are. And it's very important to take some time in our lives to see that and to know it deeply for ourselves. You can't see what a Buddhist president. Oh. Don't be don't be sure there. So how does it work in the world? So the simplest all the all the teachers I know are actually very interested in the world and interested in certain um, maturation of the world. They're definitely interested in the world maturing, and uh, and actually would love to see the world um, mature and realize, express values that we believe are important: loving kindness, compassion, care, uh, non-discrimination, uh, uh, a sense of um, uh, interconnectedness of all beings. 
um, know the the Buddhist virtues of not killing, not stealing, not hurting one another with our sexuality or with drugs or alcohol or even through speech. Those are all very important parts of Buddhism that we would love to see um, realized, not just individually, but collectively. It starts individually, though. That's very important. It doesn't mean one can't act collectively, you know, before one's totally and completely liberated. But it's very helpful to begin to liberate what's here and then to bring our freedom into the world. Um, at least personally, I'll speak personally. I was very involved in the 60s and I was doing radical political street theater and I was involved in a few demonstrations that got out of hand, we could say, and and um, all kinds of things. And um, uh, But I would say where I was coming from, even though I still value the ideals I held, my understanding was very limited and very self-centered, to be honest. Um, and there was a lot of... Um, animosity, a lot of aggression, a lot of hatred that now I don't have. It's not, that's not what, what moves me. I may be, I can get pissed off about what's happening, but that's not what's moving me in the same, it's just not, not you know, I, I can't not see the humanity even of whoever it might be I disagree with. That it's all, it's all people. It's all people actually, oddly, weirdly enough, doing the best they can, given whatever their understanding is. And it doesn't mean I agree with them at all. And it doesn't mean I will not act to, um, to uh, in-world the values that I think are most important. But it's not coming from an us-and-them position. It's just, it's just that's not it. Does that make sense? I understood that part of, you know, of things, but I just wondered how do when you start getting enlightened, do you get less, do you get more apathetic? Not apathetic, but like you don't really want to do politics anymore. No, I'm, I'm, I'm saying no. I'm saying actually... You don't really want to have that in the world, but do you... Right, no, people, people function, act. Um... Maybe some people stay in a cave and that's their contribution. And that's a valuable contribution for some people to make. And other people will be doing all kinds of things. I, I guess I'll say this. Now, you know, I don't know if you were here. Was it last week or two weeks ago that we did the, the, the Donna? So last week I said, okay, I'm, I want to offer whatever Donna's offered to me into SFI to the Tibetan cause because I'm actually very upset about what's happening in Tibet right now. And, um, you know, that's just a natural response. That's not, it's not even a big deal. But I mean, it's, it's not that we stop acting. Actually, maybe we, here's the Dharma story that I think is helpful. Um, and many of you have heard this. I use it a lot. What's the a Zen student comes to his teacher and says, what's the goal of a lifetime of practice? And the, 
in the Zen teacher, he doesn't say liberation or freedom or awakening or the sure heart's release or your mind opens or whatever. He says an appropriate response. An appropriate response. And it's a beautiful teaching. But the, que- the piece that we need to contemplate is where does an appropriate response come from? Where does it come from? And it comes from being present and being able to see clearly and not bound by our reactivity but actually responding from a a totally free heart. And the freer the heart, the better the response will be, I believe. And it doesn't mean, it doesn't, it's not Pollyanna. It doesn't mean we can make it all right. In fact, we probably won't. If we look at the history of the world, it's always been a mess. That's, the na- that's part of the nature of life on this realm. It, but that doesn't mean we don't act. It means we, we are willing to see the big picture and then act, rather than just seeing the little picture and acting. Is that more clear now? Yeah, no, it's really important. Really, it's not, as far as I can tell, the Dharma is not about, and meditation, it's not about being passive. It is about being receptive, and that's a different power. It's really the feminine power, receptivity. To really be open to the way things are and then act from there. And, 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 and often that receptivity, the femininity of it, and I'm speaking archetypally now, often gets confused with passivity. And people don't often see the power of that. Jason? Uh-huh. Yeah. Is that what? Sure. Yeah. No. It's not. So it's not such a big deal. The other question is, um, Jason was describing being present in a few different ways um, uh, at different times, um, and was asking me, well, where do I go? What What's happened for me after all this time? First of all, I think it's important to say that I go everywhere, right? Uh, no, I mean, I mean, really, just all the normal places. Um, uh, you know, I have reactions, or I get angry, or I get hurt, or all, all that stuff, and happy, and I want this, or I don't want that. All of that happens. It doesn't have so much sway anymore. And there's, there's a decent amount of time where... I'm just happy. 
And it's not a big happiness, not like, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, let's have cake happy. No, it's, <laughs> it's, it's more like it's just... Maybe, the, maybe a better word is content, that I feel content in a certain way. But I don't feel like I'm done either. And I'm really, I, I love learning more. And I feel like there's always more to learn. Um, so whatever understanding I've had, I'm always interested in seeing, well, how does that mature? What, is, what does it mean for that to mature? And, um, you know, and I, I, do pra- I do do practices at times. Like if I feel like I'm not in my body, then I do practices to try and get in my body. And, you know, the first thing in the morning, that's exactly what I do. Like just coming out of sleep, I'll just do some body practice to kind of get here. And, you know, it's, you know, and even bike riding for me is a total body practice these days, right? Totally gets me in my body. I don't have to, I don't even think of it practice, right? It's fun. But, it, but what happens is it's just body functioning, functioning, functioning. Actually, it's, it's more than that. It's, it's both body practice, it's heart practice, it's mind practice. So it, the, the, the obvious part is right. You ride your bike for 25 or 50 miles, 75. You get, you're in your body, right? The body is happening. But also, there's this love that starts happening. And it's not me doing it. So, you know, I, the riding, you just, there's this love. It's beautiful and it's, there's something just amazing about that. And it's not for everybody, but for me. And then also the mind just, you know, you have to stay present or you'll die. And so, you know, the, there's a way that the mind stays very centered without trying to make it stay centered, right? And, and what I'm pointing out here is we can start to recognize places in our life where the Dharma is showing itself to us if we use that lens where we're present. So, so you know, it's not just on the cushion or not just after retreat, but there are other, you know, it's, uh, to be honest, it's one reason why I think people like making love. That many of the qualities of the Dharma, when lovemaking is right, heart, body and the mind lets go you're not thinking about tomorrow right if, you know if it's not so good maybe you are but, <laughs> but, but when you're really there which is what makes it good right then everything we're unified we're being even as we function whether it's on the bike or making love or for some people in the garden they're so there so it's a little bit We need to end. Let's sit for a minute, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.